Pong for a song, but for how long? All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Pong sells for more than a Testarossa. RIP GIF. For Fur's sake. And the forgotten Commodore console. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. So, Neil, what have you been up to this week? Skid marks. No, skid we're, not talk- we're not talking about <laughs> skid marks, Neil. Nothing Look, you banned me from talking about Amigas last week. I'm banning you. Go on, go on. What have you been doing with skid marks? Well, you know, we've been we've been racing with skid marks, and um, this is about epic skid marks for, for those of you who didn't catch last week's show. My latest addiction against my nemesis, Asnavor. And the developer of Skidmarks made a bit of a boo-boo this week. He was tweaking the cars. We know this because he, he talks in the game chat and tells us what's going on. He was tweaking the cars. He made a tweak to a car, which had a knock-on effect to all the other cars. And all of a sudden, we were racing a second faster than we had been before <sighs> per lap. So we set all these lap times. And now he's put everything back to normal. We've oh. achieved the unachievable. These <laughs> There are lap times that can never are be achieved see- again. <laughs> I noticed that your latest lap time was in the muscle car, which was my favorite when I was getting it. I find it hard, easier to control than the Beetle. And yeah, I noticed, I thought, I, yeah, I went, I knew I was right. I knew the muscle car was the best, but now you've explained why, in fact, it, it's not the best. It was just temporarily the best. It was temporarily right? the best. He screwed up gravity or something like that. And all of a sudden, the other car was the quicker <laughs> car. And anyway, the, the times will never be achieved again. So we, it was a moment of glory. Um, anyway, moving on from skid marks, other than that, um, I've, I've had some projects on the go and I'm not one to follow statistics very closely on my YouTube channel, but I did notice there was a sudden spike in the last week or so on a certain video. And that video was the man irons video game boxes video where I was restoring old crunched up video boxes. It has just soared. It hit something like 140,000 views uh, this weekend. Um, So I don't know where it's being shared, but obviously it's hit a nerve. And off the back of that, I was doing some research into how do we take that to the next step? Instead of restoring broken video game boxes, how about if we reproduce new big box video game boxes? So if I wanted to create a brand new Lotus Turbo Challenge um box so i got chatting to my friends at one click print and this is how far we've got so far i'm holding up um this is a mock-up for cyberpunk it's not a real box but we've made a brand new big box for big box games and and on the inside and everything the the artwork's all folded around just as it would be on the originals it's got a lovely soft touch to the print so I'm going to keep working on this, and I think we can make an episode three on that series of restoring games, and we'll go into the realms of reproducing old big box video games. Obviously, we'll have to put something on the back to say this is a reproduction, but I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. If I can find the artwork to make a really nice brand new old video game box, obviously not something I can sell unless I get permission from the rights holders to to use that artwork, but mm-hmm. as a one-off to reproduce a box that I already own, um, I think it could be a fun episode so that's what i'm going to be working on this week yeah have you got anything um up your sleeve this week in terms of projects well no i was going to say i look forward to seeing that neil because um not just for reproducing boxes that are potentially getting hard to get but if you're dabbling with making your own content but in a small run then to know how to make a nice package for it would be really useful information 
So yeah, I think I think I'll take a trip up to the guys at One Click Print and we'll we'll look at the process and what they use and is it something we can do at home or are they using very expensive equipment? I don't know. We'll we'll go and find all that out, but it should be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It looks good. Uh, for me, I, I did have a quick stab at skid marks, but you know, wasn't fast enough to get into the uh, the realms of altered reality times and uh, laps and that kind of thing. Um, I did. I don't know if you got caught out by any April Fools this year at all, Neil, or if you tried pranking anybody. But I had a bit of fun. I don't know if you remember the magic eye pictures. Um, oh, I, I could never see this. them back in the day. Did you, you see the back? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. the Magic Eye pictures, for those that have maybe forgotten or have purposefully been through therapy and had them erased from your memories, were sort of a, a weird, random-looking pattern, multicolored pattern on a poster that, that fetched quite a price in the shops back in the 90s. And the idea was if you focused your view through them, you would actually see a 3D image. And people would swear they could see them. They could see the dolphins. They could see the unicorn. They could see whatever they were told to see in the write-up for whichever piece they, they'd bought. I could never see them. So I thought I'd better have a bit of fun. I found a couple of random pattern generators. I produced a couple of patterns using them. Took those into Photoshop to merge a couple in together so it was even more random and posted it up on a couple of groups professing that there was a 3D retro computer hidden in the image and you would be able to see it if only you focused your eyes correctly. And a few people did say that they were there for quite a few minutes until they realized what the date was. <laughs> did, did anyone claim to have seen the image? The closest we got was, sorry, Shane, I'm dobbing you in. My mate Shane here in Perth, he, he claimed, he said, for a second there, I saw the Amiga check mark. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, uh, I'm just smiling away thinking, there's nothing to see, mate. There's, there's absolutely nothing, there's nothing. nothing. I remember those so, Magic Eye pictures when they were on sale. They were on sale everywhere for a spell in the, in the mid-90s. And mm. there was, I could never see them except for this one time where I looked at one and my eyes, your eyes kind of had to lock in. They they had to lock mm. into kind of the middle distance, didn't they? As you say, kind of yeah. looking through the picture. And then all of a sudden this, I think it was the Eiffel Tower, um, or it might be the Empire State Building, something like that, locked into place. And I was like, wow, I can see it. And then I could never, ever see one again before <laughs> or since. Just that one time I locked in. So I, I was like, okay, finally, I believe these things are actually real. There are images in there. <laughs> it's not the world's greatest hoax. But yeah, I could never, I could never do them. Terrible. No, I'm still convinced, Neil. It, it, it was all in your head. It's just Emperor's New Clothes. That's that. That's just my story. I'm sticking with. Well, it. this even got <laughs> as far as software packages. I don't know if you remember, but you could buy software packages just for making mm. these magic eye images, and you got them on cover discs, and people were going crazy for them. Yeah, it's yeah, a very yeah. '90s thing, isn't it? I wonder if they'll ever make yeah. a comeback. I, I, I can't I think of anyone that's not. nostalgic for them. No, they looked hideous. Anyway, we really must move on. Yeah, let's uh, move more on. More retro computer related. I did pick up, do you remember me show, showing off Shane's Battle Station 2 joystick, the massive metal joystick yes. from Australia? Yeah. I've got one, Neil. I've got one. And it was just, we haven't got time to go into details now, but I picked it up for a bargain price. I'm very happy with that. So awesome. yeah, shall we move on? Let's go into our first story, Chris. Now, Neil, you may recall a couple of shows back how I lamented about not buying a Ferrari Testarossa when I had the chance. When I say I had the chance, did I really? Did I really have the money? But look, it's <laughs> it, it was a dream that I, I, I feel I nearly achieved. But I also kind of celebrated the fact that retro computing is definitely the more affordable hobby. Do you remember that at all, Neil? I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, the, the one that got away, that Ferrari Testarossa, 
which is all the more painful with your love of driving games and outrun and oh what could have been chris (laughs) yeah i know tell me about it but apparently i was wrong uh, we're not in the more affordable hobby. Um, so a Ferrari, just to sort of lay the land here, a Ferrari Testarossa current price in Australian dollars is around 250000 And that's for the more widely available left-hand drive model. In Australia and in the UK, you'd prefer the right-hand drive model, and they're more sought after because less of them were made unless they've been converted. Um, so 250000 Australian, that's about 190000 US dollars. But what if, let's just imagine for a, for a moment that you actually had that kind of cash laying around and you, you were looking for something to buy. Would you buy something like a classic Ferrari or would you instead, and uh, there may be tears in this story, Neil, I may cry, but would you instead buy Pong? Pong. <laughs> Pong. Um, for how much? Would, uh, 250,000 Australian dollars that was. No, oh, well, so the, the Ferrari is around 250,000 Australian. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would consider it if you gave me a, like a whole arcade full of, full of classic arcades with Pong at the end there. Um, I might consider that over a Ferrari, but not for a single game. No, that, that's just ludicrous. I'm out. <laughs> Well, well, somebody did, apparently. Um, so this story was brought to us on the subreddit by Pajaco6502. And what it is, is it's it's not just any game of Pong. It is the original 1975 prototype for the home version. So the arcade version came out before that. The home version, this is the prototype that they built. And it sold at auction for, wait for it, 270,910 US dollars. So real dollars, not not our pretend ones. Um, and what it is, is it's the original hand-carved prototype. So it, essentially, it looks like a box. It, it looks like one of my unfinished GCSE projects. I've got to be honest. This thing doesn't look particularly neat. It was owned by Alan Alcorn, the uh, landmark games creator and former mentor to Steve Jobs. It has two paddles and a big start game button on on the top, and it has a grill hiding a speaker. But other than that, it's a wooden box. And it comes with a letter of provenance from Alan himself. Um, In fact, I know what it looks like. It looks like the internet, as in the box with a flashing red light on the top from the IT crowd. That's what this thing looks like. Yeah, only with paddle controllers added. That's what it is. Um, So who paid this eye-watering amount? Well, the article, which is on CNN by Yeni Sanchez, doesn't actually say who purchased it, but I've got I've got an idea. It's either someone who already has a Ferrari Testarossa, or who recently sold a Testarossa, or is currently crying themselves to sleep, looking at this dodgy wooden box in the corner of the room, realizing they could have instead had a Ferrari Testarossa. What do you make of this, Neil? It's it's not quite as cool as, you know, driving around with the top down and the wind blowing through your hair. I mean, those days are clearly past us, regardless of whether we have a Ferrari Testarossa or not. Um, no wind blowing through our hair. But, uh, <laughs> you know, is it, isn't it it as cool or is it as cool? Um, it's, it's tricky. I mean, we do joke, but Pong does have a cultural significance in the history of video games. And this is a landmark bit of kit in that history. So... Uh, I, I don't think I don't think you mentioned Atari. It is, of course, by Atari, and we we also joke about where Atari is and the state of Atari in the modern day. But that name still holds 
so much weight to it in the history of video games. And of course, that's going to be a big part of it here as well, the Atari badge. Um, and the game itself, you know, a simple bat and ball game, Pong or the bat and ball game was already a thing when when this prototype came out. You had table tennis on the Magnavox Odyssey in the home at retail in 1972. So you had that. You had the much earlier prototype of tennis for two or whatever it was called on the um, oscilloscope. So this isn't the first. Um, and if if we carry on with our comparisons with cars, you know, there were other cars around before the Model T Ford. But imagine how much a prototype of a Model T would be worth now because of what it represented. It represented mainstream mass production and mass adoption. And that's what Pong in the Home did, despite the fact that there were many clones even of Home Pong. But because of where it came from, because of Atari, because of their arcade machine before it, all all of these Home Pong consoles were often referred to as Home Pong consoles, even though they weren't, weren't actually called that on the packaging. It's like what we were talking about the other day, vacuum cleaning, and Hoover, you know, the brand and the the name was was associated with it. So, yeah, I, I do agree that it's a museum piece, uh, especially with its confirmed letter from Alan to say, this is legit, this is the real thing. And we could even argue that that value will just continue to increase because of what it is, you know. Give it a few years, you might be able to sell it and buy two Ferrari Testarossas. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but there will be there will never be another one of these. There will never be a prototype another at least I'm pretty sure there will never be another prototype pong machine. It sounds like the one and only came from the man who invented it. Yeah. Um so it is a lot of money but not to not to a museum. If we're talking about museum, you know, the, the kind of money museums throw at art and um sculpture and other things. Why not? Why can't we have this kind of thing in a museum? Why can't we have future uh, computer museums looking back on the history of video games and that kind of money being spent on these landmark pieces? So I'm kind of okay with it, Chris. I'm okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, those are fair points, actually. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it is clearly, it's a one-off. Um, you know, there's never going to be another prototype quite like this um, dodgy GCSE project wooden box, and, and, that, and that's fair enough. Um, and of course, you know, wealth is relative. So even if it was an individual, I'm assuming that 270000 was chump change to the buyer. You know, it was a... It's not like I guess, somebody I was... Guess the big question is, Chris, are we going to start to see forgeries? Will we see a Ooh. forged wooden box with a, a forged letter put, put with it? Mm. That, I'll, I'll have to practice my dovetail joints <laughs> 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 and my varnishing. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, maybe this wasn't just somebody, you know, a uh, cu- couple too many drinks and, you know, they're on eBay and they've just accidentally put in 270,000. <laughs> this is something slightly different and slightly special. So, yeah, that's fair enough. But, yeah, if that does interest you, you know, um, uh, how much gaming you can get for 270,000, do check out the story on the subreddit. And I can only hope that this ends up in a public place where people can go and uh, not necessarily play it because it's a lot of money to let people get hands on with it, but at least go and look at it and uh, enjoy reading about it and, and having a walk around it in a, in a glass case or something like that. Let's hope that happens. Yeah. Our next story this week was submitted by subreddit reader Sample Stiltskin. Good name and uh, not one I've heard before on the subreddit. So welcome and thank you for contributing uh, to it. 
and they inform us of the passing of Stephen Wilhite, the creator of the GIF. Now, let's get this straight. GIF, GIF. I, 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 this is really hard for me because I have to force myself to say GIF because I used GIF for so many years. Uh, how about you, Chris? Are you a, a GIFer or a GIFer? I'm biting my tongue. Um, <laughs> I'm a gifer. And and when they announced that it was officially put forward that it was actually GIF, I'm like, no, they're just trolling. It, it's G for graphic. It's GIF. Anyway, let's let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there, there really can be no argument because it was Stephen himself, the creator, who yeah. said it's a soft G. It's a GIF. And he said it multiple times and he's made it very clear. So Did he say it yeah. on the 1st of April? He didn't. No, no. Oh, he fair, said it. Fair enough. Um, so yeah it's difficult to break those old habits but yeah unfortunately Stephen um, the creator of the GIF he, he has passed away the article linked on The Verge says that the format while the vehicle for so many animations and memes on the internet now wasn't designed of course with this in mind who could have known in the late 80s that memes would be such a big thing and welcome just behind you there to your cat Chris who has just joined the show what's your cat's name? Oh, welcome, Stitch. If it's the thin Stitch. one, it's Stitch. If it's one that looks exactly the same but twice the size, then it's Smudge. So I believe <laughs> that's, um, that's Stitch, and I'm just going to let him out. Go for it. Um, can you still hear me? You, you've still got your ears in, so I'll carry on with yes, the story. of course. So yes. the GIF was first introduced on CompuServe in 1987 as a way to distribute high-quality, high-resolution graphics in color. So not necessarily animation, but just color images. But it was on June the 15th, 1987, that GIF version 87A was developed. And this allowed animations using timed delays. So anyone who's created a, a GIF before will know you can, on each frame, you can put in a little delay for how long it is before the next frame appears. And um, you can also tell it to loop and things like that. So it moved on from being a static picture. Stephen created the GIF at home. And then when it showed promise, he took it into work and he perfected it at work. Now, CompuServe would go on to be bought by AOL, who um, they allowed the patents to expire in 1998, so nearly 10 years later, or just over 10 years later, which meant the format then became public domain. Now, something less known about Stephen, just to get a little insight into his personal life, was that um, he and his wife built a house, and in building that house, they designed a whole section of the basement just for his model train set. So model ra railways were his nerdy hobby when he wasn't creating the GIF and doing many other things. And um, for a long time, the GIF was pretty much the only way to animate anything on the internet. I'm thinking of those dial-up days where uh, you were charged by the minute, you were watching the clock, and sometimes you'd even download web pages, GIFs and all, so that you might then disconnect from the internet and then just read the web page offline in your own time to save money. Imagine that in the modern day. Um, and GIFs, you know, they seem so unremarkable now, but, um, just thinking back, can you remember your first experience of GIFs or just some general experiences of those early web days? Chris, what can you remember? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, first of all, I've got to say, I'm not going to be able to say GIF. I'm sorry. No, it's going to be GIF for me all right, <laughs> throughout this, which <laughs> means we keep everybody happy. You can say GIF, I'll say GIF and, it, and the world is good. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and, and I must throw in here also, I would have got on with this guy because I'm also, oh, I was a lover of model trains and I've still got oh, my original you? ones from my childhood. Yeah, yeah. They're still in my parents' loft waiting for me to collect them. So I will do that. None of them are worth anything. Of course I've checked, but anyway, <laughs> can't wait to get my hands on those. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, GIF memories. Well, first and foremost, it's annoying animations. And, and the problem is 
in the early days of creating our own web pages, we didn't see them as annoying. We saw them as awesome. Mm. <laughs> Something was moving on the screen. And so we put them everywhere. And, and that was not necessarily a good thing. Um, as I became a bit more, let me say, mature in my use of um, of GIFs and different graphic formats, um, at the time, really, it was between you know GIF and JPEG, um, if you were talking about online formats, I became... Uh, uh, became a, f- uh, a fan of using GIF for things that you know needed very few colors, so things like logos and um, you know flat shade um, mm-hmm. graphics, cartoony as I would call them, because you could get very small file sizes. And back then, because it was all about dial up, it was all about page size, and that came down to the individual file size of any images. So limited color, flat shade, cartoony graphics, GIF was fantastic. At the time, anything that then went into using gradients or or became more photographic, you really did lean towards JPEG, or at least that was my habit. Um, Because actually, when you applied those kind of effects to a GIF, well, then the file size actually blew out beyond what you could achieve with a good-looking JPEG. So you had to be really economical with those sizes. And for me, I don't know why, but when somebody says GIF, I then my mind automatically fast-forwards to when Flash came out. Because, of course, that was the next really cool way of being able to produce really high quality animation. Some of the same limitations really still existed. Flash was very good at vector graphics. That was its strength. So, again, flat shade, cartoony style graphics, logos, that kind of thing. But if it was anything to do with, you know, photo or more colors or gradients, then that started to fall down as well. But, yeah, all from the early days of my my work in multimedia and Internet and, yeah, just being aware of what each format could and couldn't do. What about yourself, mm. Neil? I remember just on, on the subject of Flash, was it, was it Macromedia Director? Was that the program that you used to do Flash animations with? Or was it... There was a suite. Oh, yes. So there was um, there was director. There there was director, and that was that was mainly used for putting together CD-ROM packages at the at the time. And I think you could also do menus for DVDs. I think I might be right in saying that in director. Um, And we used to use it for interactive booths, expos, that kind of thing. Um, But Flash was a program. It wasn't just a file format. So Flash was a program in its own right as well. And you could use Flash to uh, do coding in ActionScript. Um, you could, uh, or you could just use the GUI to create stuff. You could do interactive games, but for the internet rather than for CD-ROM. And of course, you could create just individual website elements. Sometimes you do an entire page in Flash. Other times, we just use it to create an animation in the corner, or because we wanted to have the buttons resizable down the left-hand side navigation, that kind of thing. Loved okay. Flash. Loved the whole Macromedia suite. Yeah. So yeah, you had lots of experience then with uh, website development and then into Flash. Um, I always remember trying to put web pages together in the 90s and I'd use a combination of uh, just Notepad to tinker with the code uh, and also a bit of software called Hot Dog by Sausage Software. I don't know if that's one that you remember. Um, I I did try to use Microsoft it was front page wasn't it It was microsoft's one oh yes Um, yes i got really (laughs) frustrated with that really quickly yeah didn't didn't enjoy that but hot dog worked for me and i seem Mm. to remember that i i i probably went crazy to begin with but then i really wanted to use gifs subtly so i wanted to make something twinkle in the corner of the page or subtly animate um a button if you moved hovered the mouse over it that sort of thing but my skills always meant that it wasn't quite right you know this was just me tinkering around as a hobby and so you'd put the mouse over the button and everything would jump a few pixels out because the animation wasn't oh. quite right and things like that. You know yeah. what I mean? That that would always happen. Yeah. Or yeah. you change the size of the browser window and everything would just it would be like <laughs> Lego. All the bricks would fall apart. <laughs> it wouldn't quite all join yeah. up. So 
I was never really very good at website design. And um, I also remember with, with GIFs in those early days that our connection speeds were such that you would see the individual frames of the animation load one at a time, dink, dink, dink. And then eventually when it got to the last one, they'd all link together and the loop would start and you'd be like, wow, the, the GIF is animating. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's such a small thing, but it was kind of exciting at the time. You know, you'd sit and stare at this thing loading, almost like a ZX Spectrum loading screen waiting for it to complete. <laughs> um yeah so yeah you know lots of memories of them and um sometimes it would all be too much and and with your dial-up speeds and with the cost of your internet connection you'd turn off automatic downloading of pictures and gifs on a website to speed things up so that you would just get the text and you would just download what you wanted so um that got me thinking just out of interest i checked chrome yesterday to see if that option was still there and sure enough it is you can still turn off the downloading of pictures automatically on Chrome mm. in the modern day, far less critical on my 500 meg fiber to the house connection than it was on my, you know, 56k or slower dial up modem connection. But um, it's still possible if you want to speed things up, you can turn the pictures and the GIFs off. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Oddly, I, I never felt the need back then to turn off automatic downloading. Maybe my browsing habits, um, because of dial up, and as you've already mentioned, the fact that we paid per minute. Um, in the UK, I'll come back to that. Um, but I think I was just very targeted in where I wanted to go and how I wanted to get there and, and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I do remember, I mean, in the UK, it was a, it was a local phone call, wasn't it? And you dialed up, but you would be charged, you know, 10 pence a minute or 20 pence a minute or whatever it was. And that racked up quickly, uh, you know, especially as suddenly, you know, late night became early morning and before you knew it, you, you didn't know how much you spent on the phone. So we were, especially with emails, we would, you know, log on. Yeah, well, even you type your email offline, you'd then log on, hit send and receive, wait for your emails to go, new ones to come back in and then log off to save money. Yeah. So yeah. when we first visited my wife's, parents here in australia i taught them this money saving habit not realizing that the way and it might be different in the us as well the way it works here in australia or it did at the time was you pay per connection not per minute oh so rather than saving the money i was oh, no. greatly increasing by several fold the money they were spending on their internet oh, no. so yeah they could connect once it was a local phone call and they could stay on for three hours it's the same charge um which when you realize that other countries approached it in a different way really in some ways potentially well i wouldn't say held back the internet in the uk because clearly it didn't but we were ripped off neil we were totally ripped off I've got a feeling that, uh, and I'm sure a listener will correct us if this is wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how it was in the US. I think local phone calls were a flat right. rate free of charge yeah. or or just a yeah flat rate charge. Um, and then long distance rates were charged. So it was, yeah, it was probably cheaper for them to dial up and get on the internet. Um, Mid 90s, I remember being happy if my internet spend per month on dial up was about 50 to 55 pounds a month. That's about where yeah. I was, which is quite a yeah. lot of money at the time. And um, I made the mistake once, I think I've told this story before on the podcast, so I just repeat it very quickly, was that I used um, a British Telecom phone card so that the dial-up connection would be itemized on my dad's bill so that I could say, this is what I've spent and I can pay for it. Not realizing that That's if you went through idea. the phone card, it charged you a premium rate. So that one oh. month that I did that, I got an internet bill of over £500. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> 
took a while to pay that one off. Um, oh, not good. In fact, I think he was. I think he was quite lenient, and he helped me with that. Um, but after that, I coded a little program that would run every time I connected, take a record of it, and then keep a t- running tally of how much I was spending. So I, I, I was never in doubt again. But that was a painful lesson. But yeah, just coming back to GIFs and some examples that we may remember over the years. The uh, the big one was the animated under construction signs that you saw on web pages. Black and yellow signs spinning around saying website under construction. When was the last time you went on a website, Chris, and saw under construction? They just don't, you don't announce it anymore. You don't say, oh, by the way, this website's not quite finished yet, but have a look around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't understand why anybody ever thought that was a good idea. I actually, again, in Flash, I made this really funky under construction animation. And, you know, with this rotating crane that would plop a thing in because you could do all that in Flash. And uh, it would have taken me less time to create the website, Neil. (laughs) Why did I spend that time? Just finish the website. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's that. Um, You could also do transparency effects on it, couldn't you? So there was a whole period of animated fire, you know, flames licking up the bottom of the web page. Um, usually, and at the bottom of the web page, you would have your visitor counter or maybe a button for your guest book, or you'd be uh, a part of a website affiliate chain. So you could click to go to the next website in that chain and all of that stuff. Um, of course, the dancing baby GIF, everyone remembers that <laughs> the same one that was in Ali McBeal and, mm. um, GIFs were quite a big part of MySpace as well. When we moved into the MySpace period, we just littered our customized pages with um, animated GIFs. I, I remember a lot of sparkling word art in that period. You would you would choose your playlist of music to play when people visited your page. You'd have sort of sparkly words. And then the really bad ones would have animated backgrounds as well, sort of wallpaper on the back. It's just making everything completely unreadable. But we did it because we could and GIFs were cool and animation was so new <laughs> and exciting on the internet. Um, so yeah, it's fair to say when you look back in all of these periods, Coming up into the modern period as well, where you've got memes, where um, uh, GIFs are really used now in kind of a reactionary way. They're not integrated as mm. part of your website. You use them like emojis, don't you? Uh, you know, somebody says something to you and you you send back a GIF from the library that's automatically linked to WhatsApp or uh, yeah. Facebook Messenger or whatever service you're using. GIFs are just a, a search away. They're always there. They're, they're really tightly integrated with a lot of these services. So it's fair to say that the GIF has really grown up and evolved with the internet rather than become redundant like so many other technologies have. And I, I think that's pretty admirable. And I think that's a reflection of its suitability, its fitness for purpose from the beginning, regardless of the speed of our internet connections increasing, its purpose remains and it's and it's fit for that. And um, well, well done to the GIF. Um, it's good, it's good to see that good technology sometimes does stick around. And, um, of course that our thoughts this week are with the family of Stephen Wilhite and we thank him for his contribution to all of our digital lives. We often talk about joysticks on the, uh, on the show, Neil, uh, but Do I've we? got a question and, and bear with me here. Trust me on this one. All right. Uh, how often do you feel the need to stroke your joystick, Neil? Sorry, I should probably say your joysticks and or controllers, you know, just out of interest. This could go downhill quickly. Um, I, I hate seeing dirt and grime on a joystick or a joypad. So uh, I'll go as soon as I see that, I'll go and clean it around the exhibition space here. I like to keep them clean, but 
I've never felt the need to just walk up to one and stroke it. No, no. Anything that would probably feel a little bit awkward if I started doing that. I'm, I can't think of a time that I felt compelled. Oh, fair enough. Uh, maybe the problem is that they're not furry enough, Neil. Oh, so I, I, do, I do think this might be a new low in gaming and anything retro and anything ever. Um, but there's a new limited edition set of controllers for the Xbox. They're a limited run. And they're to celebrate Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the movie. Uh, one is blue, of course, and, and the other one, well, it's red. And they're both furry. They're covered in fur. Yep, the entire controller is covered in fur except for the buttons. Um, so they they come with a, a custom Sonic-themed Xbox Series S. And these utterly stupid controllers aside the xbox i think actually looks quite nice um it has sonic and sonic versus knuckles image across the front of it a really nice graphic and above that encompassing the circular grill there's a nice big shiny gold ring you know what else would they put there it's a weighted question neil as i'll get to how you attain this in a moment but is this something you'd buy you know a, a custom xbox series s with furry controllers so let me get this straight. The, the Xbox itself isn't furry, is it? It's just just the controllers. No, just the controllers, okay. yeah. I feel like I need to raise the obvious, first of all, which is that hedgehogs are spiky. They're not furry. So, um, That's a good point. <laughs> That's a really good point. It's a bit odd that they've got... Well, I wouldn't expect them to make a spiky controller, but okay, well, I'm not sure where the furry bit... Maybe it's belly. Maybe it's like you're tickling sonic's belly or something like that i don't know <laughs> never never tickled a hedgehog's belly i don't know if they're furry but um yeah th what this smacks of looking at it is the kind of thing that's going to look horrible in a few years time if you don't already think it looks horrible do, do you remember that trend for soft touch plastics that had kind of a matte black um well it wasn't always black but often it was like a matte black soft touch plastic layer all over them yeah yeah. And then over time, that layer would turn to like a gummy substance and then everything ended up looking horrible and sticky. And as retro collectors, we come across things like PDAs and things like that, which are just all gummy. And all you can do is rub that off to get to the plastic below, which was mm. never meant to be seen. So it doesn't ever really look the same again once you've got rid of that. So I think it's going to end up like that. I think these joy pads are going to end up with bald patches with matted hair with chewing gum stuck in them or, or whatever else it's, it's not going to be a good look i mean how do you maintain them do you have to shampoo them do you have to you know, you, what, what do you do to look after these or, things or them? <laughs> i don't know i don't know but um uh, is it is it going to be one of those things that are destined to stay on a shelf as, as a display piece forever i don't know but I, I will say this as i get older chris um and i don't know if other listeners will relate is that when i sit and play games for long periods I do now start to get cold hands uh, and cold huh. feet as well. Um, so my circulation is obviously getting worse with age. So maybe not a furry one, but maybe a heated joy pad. If I could request a heated joy pad, that'd be quite <laughs> a nice thing. Or do you know when people ride mopeds up and down and they have like these gloves that are attached to the handlebars that they can slip their hands into Ooh, and they're yeah. heated. Some of those on a joy pad. That'd be quite <laughs> joy nice. Pad yeah, like a nice, like a, like a nice old person tartan pattern on there. Uh, with some yeah. matching slippers. That's that's how nice pair of I want mittens. games. Yeah, <laughs> ga gaming for the older generation. I think there's a whole range, a whole fashion range in there, and and accessories <laughs> and peripherals. Yeah, 
yeah, I'll, I'll get thinking on that. I see what I can put into the shop. But um, indulge me anyway, Chris. How much is this, and where do I get one? Well, you can't. Um, yep, sadly, you can't just buy it. Well, I say sadly. Uh, it's not something shame. I particularly go for. But anyway, um, the details uh, are in the in the story by Matt Patches on Polygon.com. Um, so it's essentially, yes, it's a limited run, but they're doing them as giveaways on an enter-to-win sweepstakes. So to enter, mm. you have to go to the Xbox Twitter page. You have to retweet a promotional post with the hashtag Xbox Sonic 2 sweepstakes. Or apparently you can use um, Microsoft Rewards to buy a raffle ticket to be in the draw to win one. And it ends on April the 30th. Um, so all this craziness aside, furry joypads and all of that, um, what about Sonic? Were you a fan? Um, well, before we go on, have, have you actually checked the date of this announcement, Chris? I, we've got to be careful of April Fools here. This isn't an April Fools, is it? <laughs> I, I did indeed check. The thought did, in fact, cross my mind that I double checked. The story was actually published on the twenty second of March, so I think okay. we're safe. Okay, just had to double check. Um, yeah, Sonic. Sonic, I have always admired. Uh, I've always appreciated those first versions that were so very tightly put together and they pushed the mega drive hardware um to its limits showing us everything that the machine was capable of it really was such a great way to show off the machine and uh, i mean what what was um sega's mascot before that was it was it alex kid was it i'm not quite sure they, they had they did have a mascot didn't they um to, to me it's but, just outrun <laughs> it was just outrun well on the home just consoles, outrun but, sega outrun that's um, it. <laughs> yeah i mean i mean sonic really stepped up to the plate what a mascot that is yep. and continues to be to this day and um i always laughed a little bit despite being such a hardened um amigan at the time and uh, you know, I would always fight the corner of the microcomputer over the console at the time. But I, even I would laugh when I saw our microcomputers try to emulate the kind of platforming mm. action that we saw in Sonic. It just, it just wasn't happening. Even if it was possible technically, the, the team behind Sonic was just awesome. And likewise, of course, Mario, uh, who was Mario was its real rival. Mario was Sonic's rival. Nothing that was, you know, Zool. Uh, putty anything like that <laughs> on the amiga any yeah. platform the, the gianna sisters anything like that it didn't it they were good games but they didn't come close to the sonics and marios of the world if we're honest and if i had to pick between those two sonic and mario it's a really really close one but i am slightly on the side of mario just slightly yeah. i had to pick between the two um but i did always love going to my friend's house that owned mega drives um always loved playing sonic and we would play it for a while, but before long, Streets of Rage would be loaded up. That's, that's the game we would play the most. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, a fan of Sonic, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, cool. Um, I'm, I'm not a big platformer, but I did, I did play Sonic. But only... Did I ever play it on the Mega Drive? My friend Sean had a Mega Drive, probably played it maybe once. But I ended up with a Sega Game Gear at one point. Um, bought one when they came out new. And of course, one of the games I got for the Game Gear was was the um, was Sonic, which is quite interesting in itself because obviously Sonic's a very fast game. The Game Gear screen didn't really keep up, I have to say. You sort of got this unintended motion blur on the, on the original screen. Um, but other than that, it led to quite a fond memory because I remember it was my 18th birthday. In fact, it was an early surprise party for me at my sister's flat. 
all my friends were there and you know that time of life neil you know there are certain girls you're interested in but you don't really know how to talk to them i don't know if you ever had that kind of issue oh yeah and i just yeah. remember that there, there was just this wonderful memory of i'm at my party i've got my sega game gear which is a little bit nerdy back then and there i'm in the kitchen of my sister's flat and these two girls actually spent time with me because we were just there chatting uh so carolyn and rebecca and i had a bit of a thing for rebecca at the time and we just sat there sitting on the kitchen floor playing sonic on the sega game gear so thank you Legend. sega thank you sonic <laughs> that was fantastic <laughs> until the battery ran out um yeah i imagine five minutes that, later <laughs> i imagine sonic on the game gear is probably the same as the master system version and it always makes me chuckle mm. we have a master system out here for people to play on and a big stack of cartridges so they can choose what game they want to play but nine out of ten people go for sonic on the master system and i think it's because they're so familiar with it on the mega drive they just want to see what it's like on the master system they mm it's almost like they're looking for the car crash they want to they just want to oogle it and go well how bad can it be and actually it's a pretty good version on the master system without the problems of the game gear screen um but yeah it's just interesting to me that people go for sonic on the master system out of all the choices that they have here mm. yeah interesting cool so if you want to run rings around the competition and get stroking uh, you better speed over to the subreddit and check out the full story shared by starcade 2084 our next story comes from Oz Retrocomp, who we must thank again for being a guest a few weeks back, um, as well as me, Machine Dean, last week. I had a really good time chatting with him. and um, That was good. Yeah, it, it was good. It was a good chat. And, and that's not to say these people won't be back again for future episodes. I think um, we're, we're very open-minded here to who might be a, a guest on the show. So if you've got any suggestions, do come and chat to us on the subreddit and let us know. Or we're very happy to have these people back again if you particularly enjoyed their shows. So we're, we're happy to do that. And thank you again to them. Now, what we do love speculating on this show is unreleased hardware. We chatted about the Atari ST console recently on the show. And thanks to a submission to the subreddit by OzRetroComp, we have a new one to talk about this week. It's the Commodore 64 Game Machine. You might think you know about this one, but I'd hazard a guess that you don't because you're probably thinking of the Commodore 64 Game System, or GS, not to be confused with the Game Machine. The GS was released in December of 1990, and that was pretty much a regular Commodore 64 board inside a keyboardless console case, and that was released end of 1990. The 16-bit consoles and the micros were in their stride, so of course that flopped. It was an awful console. It turns out, however, that Commodore had something called the C64 Game machine on the table um five years earlier um unlike the gs this was a c64 that was redesigned on a much smaller scale system board so they had actually put some thought into this rather than commodore trying to shift leftover c64 boards from the factory and um it's an odd one um there'll be a link in the show notes to go and have a look at this so i'd, I'd um, urge you to look at pictures or perhaps duncan's showing them on the screen when he edits this up for us and what you'll see is a small console and it's got a joystick integrated into the case, which I always found to be an odd design choice when people integrate joysticks into, into systems because they're always going to break. Uh, you've also got a D9 joystick port on the side for player two to plug a regular joystick in. And the case is injection molded. So that would suggest that it was rather close to production if they've spent the money on the molds and they've got that far. 
For our audio listeners, what you've got is a cream-colored console with the Commodore logo on the front left. It's got a raised part at the back that looks like it's kind of got speaker holes. And there are, um, there are also what look like buttons between those holes, but I don't know if those buttons would have just been for the prototype or if that would be in the final design. They look a little bit chonky, if I'm honest. Um, and then on the right-hand side, you've got this half a ball, and it's a blue round joystick. It's not like a stick with a ball on top. It's it's a round ball. It very much reminds me of half a bullcock in your toilet system. <laughs> it's like a blue <laughs> bullcock sticking out the top of this console. Um, <laughs> and I think if you removed that, looking at the style of the case, it almost looks like a telephone handset would sit there. So uh, I would describe this as looking like a telephone answering machine with a bullcock on it. <laughs> I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this thing for our audio listeners, but... Just put those elements together. You'll you'll come up with something. I'm sure it'll be similar. So, Chris, it's 1985. The Nintendo NES is out. The Sega Master System comes out in October of that year, at least in Japan. It's with us a little later. We know that Commodore can produce this thing cheaply because they absolutely devastated the US low-cost computing market with their aggressive C64 pricing strategy. So I'd expect this to be very affordable. But... Would it have been a contender? What do you think? Uh, first, Neil, I have to say, and to help you with your description for the audio listeners, this looks like a Fisher-Price baby toy. <laughs> Let's not pull punches. It looks like a my first computer, uh, and that doesn't look like a joystick. It looks like something you'd slap because at the age of two months, you have little cognitive ability to do anything else with it. Oh, there's a blue plastic thing. Hit. <laughs> it just that's what it reminds me of i'm sorry um so I, I assume around the back there's a hidden pull cord maybe then you pull it out and it slowly retracts whilst playing short chip tunes of twinkle twinkle little star that's that's what i'm expecting when i look at this thing who designed this who sat in a boardroom ready to present to management thinking yep that's a job well done lads <laughs> so i don't know not surprised it flopped or, or didn't get out in the first place um so no i don't think it would have been a contender uh, I mean, when you compare it to what was out, as you've just mentioned, the Master System looked sleek. It looked futuristic. And I'm talking about the first version of that console. Um, not particularly a fan of the Master System 2, but the, the original one looked great in the day. And even today, I think it's a handsome looking little box. Uh, the NES, for me personally, and it's a very personal thing, I think it's a bit more ugly, um, but it already had the traction it needed. Everybody knew what it was and knew what it did. So... Would people who liked and understood the C64, would they have jumped on board thinking, okay, it's a C64 consoleized? Well, I doubt it because those kind of people probably already had a C64. Um, and surely, you know, <laughs> maybe the line, but it needs a working keyboard would have would have come out. Maybe that's not a new phrase at all. Can't think what I'm referring to there. So it really begs the question, who is a target audience? And well, I don't think there was one apart from preschoolers comes down to price doesn't it i mean if this thing had come onto the market at 50 pounds then it, it no. could have come yeah. up um if you look at the cartridge slot it looks to be identical to the regular commodore cartridge slot so there would have been a library of games available um and of course cartridges would have helped developers in terms of um reducing piracy so that would have helped a little bit but yeah I'm, i think i'm on the same side of the fence as you on this one um we can also learn from looking at the board that there were probably no intentions to ever offer a keyboard add-on to be able to turn it into a full-size c64 because it's only got one of the cia chips instead of two so 
there's no keyboard expansion ports on there to manage it. It doesn't have the chip that would have been able to manage it. Likewise, with the rear expansion ports, they're all gone and there's there's no, no chips to manage any add-ons there. So it really is a, a cut-down C64 rather than the um, the full board that was put in the later GS. Um, and uh, the Joy Ball, I think that's what we should call it, on the PCB on the <laughs> underside of that. It's actually got Sony written on that one. So that's not developed by Commodore. That's a, that's a Sony Joy Ball that's integrated in there. And it's got, apparently it's got the newer type of SID chip in there that we found in the later C64s. So it's a bit of a mishmash of everything really, but obviously some thoughts gone into this by whoever developed it. And um, I don't know who developed it. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. It would be odd to think of this as a prototype for the later GS because of the way the board is different. Um, So I'm not quite sure why this wasn't developed any further, why it didn't come to market, who put the kibosh on it and said no that's enough of that project we, we just don't know it's just an interesting thing to look at and if we go off on a slightly different tangent here um and think about what this thing could have been i i always think that there's a psychological element to any console that's derived of a microcomputer because there were plenty that came along and pretty much all of them flopped uh, and I think a big part of that is the psychology that there's a kind of mystery, a kind of mystique to a games console and what it was capable of. Certainly in those years, and I'm talking from personal experience now, when I had very little understanding of what was going on under the case. This this was just, you know, a black magic box. This was witchcraft going on here. And there was mystique to the Segas and the, um, and the Nintendo consoles out there. And also the companies behind it and their gaming heritage, especially in the 80s, that arcade heritage. Uh, You know, these were names, Segas, the Nintendos, the Ataris. These were names that we saw down in the arcades on the sides of cutting edge gaming cabinets. And that excited us. And that all fed into the same mystique and and the fever to want to get to buy into that brand and that marquee and have a slice of that at home. Even more exciting if this was a Japanese company that was little known to us in the West or you know, it just it just all fed into the mystique and the the magic of it all. And with that in mind, I'm not sure that a Commodore games console could ever have been cool enough to have cut it against the Segas or Nintendos of the world. What do you think? No, you're right. I mean, I think the closest Commodore came after they'd obviously built an even bigger name for themselves with the C64 and um, obviously the machine that we're not meant to mention. Um, but the closest thing they came to a cool console, I would say, is the CD32. But and I'm going to lose some friends here. It was it was a 32-bit console that played 16-bit games. That's that's what the CD32 yep. was, and it made very little use of the fact that it had a CD-ROM drive as well, which is a lost opportunity. But I think that's the closest they got. Um, I just think it was too little, too late. Um, even today, I'd argue that the CD um the the cd32 and i'd also include the cd tv in this next statement are the best looking things so not necessarily the best technically but the best looking things commodore ever produce yeah yeah i mean they're good looking things but it, mm. it's hard to quantify mystique but even with those mm. they were good looking things but i think a lot of that mystique was lost because you were buying cds of mm software that you'd already bought on disc or seen available on disc for a microcomputer absolutely kind of yeah ruined the console experience and even if we look at something like the atari jaguar where it got so many 
uh, ports that took advantage of the 68,000 chip on it rather than all of the chips and, and the, the advantages hardware-wise that you could get out of a Jaguar, you, you were getting games like Cannon Fodder come to it, which you'd seen a million times on microcomputers. And that kind of spoiled it as well. So exclusives are a huge part of it as well. And the Commodore 64 games machine, I, I don't think it would have had any exclusives. It would have just I've just had a thought now. that were already available. Go on. I've just had a thought. This is a prototype, yeah? If mm-hmm. they'd have just made it out of wood, it would be worth $270,000. We'd be in Ferrari territory now, wouldn't we? <laughs> Here's the lesson Why didn't they just do that? hardware developers. Make your prototypes out of wood. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be worth a quarter of a million in future. That's not to say this thing wouldn't be worth some money. I imagine it would go to quite a bit to a collector, but I don't think mm. a quarter of a million. Mm. I'll put down £20 as an opening offer. Let's see where that goes. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, another case of what could have been. So uh, go and take a look for yourself at what could have been and the link in the show notes and let us know what you think in the subreddit. It's time now to cover last week's community question of the week. And that was a question about relaxing, taking a breath, chilling out and telling us about the game that you go to to switch off and relax to. Do you go to a puzzler? Do you go for a a rhythm game? Do you go for a racing game? As I do, as I described in skid marks, I'll get you as never. Perhaps you can chill out to a a beat-em-up game uh, merrily smacking several shades of heck out of your opponent to release those endorphins. So let's go and take a look. Chris, do you want to read the uh, the first answer that we had on our subreddit? Yep, of course. So the first one's from Ben Wawa, and he says straight up, Tetris. Tetris has got to be the ultimate game for getting in the zone. The fact that it starts slowly and then builds up in speed is the thing that, that I think gives it the edge over other games. You start off taking your time, planning where to put the pieces, and then it picks up in speed. It draws you into the zone. All of a sudden, the pieces are coming down an incredible rate of knots, and everything else has become a blur. And that there is is the blocks and the tune which is instantly recognizable i've enjoyed playing tetris for more than 30 years now starting with humble Game Boy version all the way through the versions that i have and up to now on the oculus quest didn't realize it was a vr version yeah, of tetris, now. tetris. yeah look more into that um i'm just going to add this as a, a, a an addition to that first answer rather than a second answer which is from colin the activist he says flow on the ps3 slash psp was also pretty chill as in the early levels of tetris i just think mm. that game um that featured on an episode of star trek the next generation with will, will wheaton and ashley judd that's will wheaton not will we we wheaton as it came out of my mouth there <laughs> and um <laughs> <laughs> they said that looked chill I don't know what that reference is, I'm afraid. I didn't see that game on, I on do. Star Trek. But yes. You do? Okay. Was it Tetris-like? No, it was just a, it was sort of, you know, a sort of fictional game, but the entire crew got addicted to it. There were some aliens. There's always aliens. There's always interference in Star Trek Next Gen, and there's always aliens doing experiments on the crew. And this was, yeah, their way of sort of influencing the entire crew and taking them over. That's right. So they took over the crew to then take over the ship to do whatever evil alien things they were doing. Can't remember all the details, but, yeah, it was just sort of this weird sort of pseudo 3D checkerboard um in the game uh with this weird cone and they had to get a ball into the cone and it made nice noises and oh, did okay. soothing things and that's how they became addicted yeah did they have to play so in the holodeck reference. where did they play that 
They were playing it. They were plugging a thing into their head. That's all I remember. Oh, and they were okay. reproducing these things in a replicator. So they just wore it on their head and then it sort of took over their, their consciousness. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, the next answer is from Krills. Uh, he says, grinding in RPGs. I've developed a deep and growing love for RPGs over the past three or four years, specifically JRPGs. Working through one game over the course of two, three, sometimes four months by chipping away at 10 to 15 minutes a day has become a great balance within my daily workflow. That's something you don't often hear people say. I've managed to find a nice balance of 15 minutes a day in my daily workflow. And again, oh no, <laughs> it, I, you know, I, I'm all on or all off. I'm addicted. I can't stop. <laughs> so well done for, for um, managing your time so well. Uh, he goes on to say, and what's funny is how much I enjoy the grinding, whatsoever form that may take from game to game. Uh, there are even days where I sit down and try to avoid story progression for the sake of building levels and letting my mind rest for a bit. Perhaps a bit cliche, but any of the mainline Final Fantasy games, at least those I've experienced so far, or a Pokemon game are my comfort foods. But exploring the genre across the spectrum has become a new goal of mine. I've heard most people lost patience as they get older, but I'm grateful to say that somehow I seem to be acquiring more as I indulge in this weird quality to my character. So that's nice. A bit of self-exploration, um, hmm. grinding, but not to the degree of frustration. If you're just doing 15 minutes a day to increase your stats and whatever, you know, chop wood, whatever it is you're doing in the game. Um, <laughs> if you feel rewarded, then that's a nice feeling. And um, yeah, Krills has, has found some peace and some happiness in that. Who's next, that's Chris? Good. Uh, Pajaco6502, which I think we've already mentioned a couple of times today. Whilst it is not something I got, I can honestly recommend The Tourist from a couple of years back as a really good chilled out game to play. But normally something like Sudoku or Scrabble on my phone is something I like playing to chill out. I used to love Hectic on, uh, sorry, Hexic, is that? Hexic? Hexic, On yep. Xbox 360, yeah, on Xbox 360 Arcade, but I don't have that anymore and no one to my knowledge has done a decent port of it yet, but that's a great chill out game. Yep. So, awesome. there you so go. some good suggestions this week. Thank you, everyone. And um, hopefully we're all chilled out from playing our games this week. Um, Chris, do we have a question, a new question for this week? What's our question of the week? So this week's question of the week, if we set up a computer museum, uh, what prototypes of which systems would you like to see in it? Or even just to add to this, do you own any one-off prototypes? Is that something you have in your collection? Is that something you're willing to share with the community in terms of your response in the subreddit? Please do let us know. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you consider to be a landmark system? Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what people answer. I think we might get some interesting ones there. Um, as always, thank you to everyone for listening to the show or for watching on YouTube. Please do take a moment to subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. Can you believe it? We are edging very close to 5,000 subscribers over on YouTube. That'll be a nice wow. uh, landmark to hit. Uh, we've done over 70 shows. We're, we're working our way up to 100 shows. Um, it's all going great. And we appreciate every one of you for listening and uh, and watching and contributing over on the subreddit. So thank you, everyone. Take care. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RNC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. 
Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.